0: Okay, um, so we're way behind already. Um, I want to say something about the Skelton. I assume you've now uh, sort of read the Skelton and definitely read the Wyatt. Um, so Skelton, um, the poem that you guys all said you liked uh, Monday was the poem on the death of Philip the Sparrow. And, um, yeah, that's one of his famous ones. Um, It's from that poem. It's obviously not the whole thing. Um, I mean, it's obviously not the whole thing because the title is, um, uh, as it's given to you in this book, is from Philip Sparrow. Um, This is a long poem. It's 1,400 lines long, uh, which is, what, like two books of Paradise Lost. And um, you have the opening and then some lines... Um, from later on in the poem. It is in the voice of the Sparrow's owner, who is a real person named Jane Scroop. She was a young girl in um, um, a convent school whose Sparrow died. And um, so Skelton just went kind of wild in um, bringing together the church service with the the service for the dead and various other church services um, with the death of this sparrow. Um, why did people like it, just since so many people did? What was, what was likable? Gabriel.
1: Um, I would say the viracism, it, like, it just slowed really, really well. Uh-huh. And in addition to it, it just, there is this aspect of paganism that just didn't quite, it just like, wasn't what I was expecting. And I found it quite entertaining that we have this nun talking about the um, classical gods and goddesses and their relationships to the sparrow, and instead of talking about the big god up above, it's all the little ones that are like, running around.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, is your hand up, yeah. Leah? And it's
2: also just you know to make the simple answer that the, the impassioned eulogizing of a sparrow is inherently funny.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so
2: it's not-
0: I mean, it's, it's a lot of lines for a sparrow. Um, and it makes sense that the sparrow's owner herself, um, called Dame Marjorie here, might um, be sad for a long time over the death of a sparrow. But you wouldn't expect a poet to write 1,400 lines about the death of a sparrow, except as an excuse. So the question really is what's it an excuse for? I mean, it's delightful, so you can say you can answer that very quickly by saying it's an excuse for being delightful. Um, but what's delightful about it then, George?
1: It seems like you just discovered rhyme and is yeah. really having a lot of fun with it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the thing about skeleton, there's a form called skeletonics in English poetry, um, and guess who invented them? Um, basically, they refer. I, I'm. There is a Shakespearean sonnet. I'm trying to think whether I can say that there's any other proper name. Yeah, there's Spenserian stanzas. Um, that might be it, though, for, for um, forms of verse in English that have English poets um, give the proper name to that form of verse. Uh, there's skeltonics, which, which this poem is written in. Um, there's Spenserian stanzas, because Spencer invented the stanza that he writes The Fairy Queen in, and as we'll see. When we get there. Um, and they're Shakespearean sonnets because Shakespeare um, invented the form of sonnet that's the one you probably are most familiar with uh, three quatrains and a couplet. Um, that's not the sonnets that you will have read for today by Wyatt are not in that form. They're in what's called the Petrarchan form, which is the, the more standard form of the sonnet. Um, but we will get to that. So skeletonics, yeah, as George says, it's as though he had discovered rhyme. Um, I wanted to read you a little passage from um, another part of um, Philip Sparrow, which is um, she, the voice, the speaker, um, has occasion because she can talk about because she does talk about everything um, that suggests itself to her. Has occasion to talk about the history of English poetry to date, um, that date being the late fourteen, early fifteen hundreds. Um, And at one point she says, or Skelton writes for her, and no doubt writing for himself, writes, in Chaucer I am sped. That is, I'm I'm an expert. Um, I'm skilled. Sped there means skilled. In Chaucer I am sped. His tales I have read. His matter is delectable, salacious, and commendable. Salacious is a great word. It's not salacious. Um, but it sounds like it. It, it means something like um, gives solace, um, gives, gives one a sense of, of um, being happy in one's situation. His matter is delectable, salacious, and commendable. His English well allowed, so as it is improud. For as it is employed, there is no English void. At those days, much commended. And now, man would have amended his English whereat they bark, and more, and mar all they wark. Chaucer, that famous clerk, his terms were not dark, but pleasant, easy, and plain. No word he wrote in vain." Um, so that's Skelton talking about Chaucer um, about 100 years after Chaucer died. And um, if you've tried to read Chaucer, we talked about this before, the Middle English, Um, is a very different language from the um, language Skelton is writing. And what actually happened was that um, pronunciation of English changed between Chaucer's day and Skelton's. That was a century in which um, pronunciation changed. Um, And the change was effectively that English became the weird and hard to spell language that it is now between Chaucer and Skelton. That is to say, um, in Chaucer, words were still pronounced more or less the way they were written. So the word "knight" um, was pronounced "nicht," or um, with an e at the end, A knight in shining armor would be a knichte. Um And in that about that hundred years, pronunciation started changing. So you got a lot of the silent letters that people object to. People know George Bernard Shaw's. Um, Rage against the spelling of English. Is this from? Do you, do you know this? I
2: mean, it's the poem where it's all that all rhyming words that
0: That's it? not Shaw, but that's a similar one. Yeah. So they're, they're actually this is <clears throat> it's interesting to find out what kind of person you are. Um, you know about super tasters. Some people are super tasters and some aren't. Um, some people can taste the difference between the it's genetically determined that some people can taste the difference between two tastes and others can't. Some people will taste something as bitter. And others won't taste anything at all. Um, there's a similar and interesting difference, um, which actually tends to be a difference between English majors and math majors, um, between those who. The screen. If I, but I have to write this down. This is terrible. Um, um, Don't say anything. Don't whisper anything. So, um, read these words. And how many can tell which rhyme? Just by reading them. Can you tell by reading them which rhyme? If you can, raise your hands. Huh, It's interesting. Maybe, maybe the rest of you should be math majors. <laughs> um, so about half of people, when they read, will sub what they read. That is, they will hear in their minds, in their heads, in whatever part of uh, cerebral cortex deals with sounds, they'll hear what the words sound like. So they will know that tough and enough rhyme. Um, half of people won't. Um, what they do when they read is they um, are, their processing of written words is visual. And so what they're seeing is the visual parallels rather than the audit, the audible, the um, parallels. So um, for people who are purely visual, they see these words, tough, though, cough, rough, I guess that runs with enough and, and tough as well. Um, they see those words and they say, oh yes, very similar, they all have the O-U-G-H ending. Except they don't say that, they see that, that they all have the O-U-G-H ending. Um, and um, half, of, half of people, I think it really does break down 50-50, um, half of people will hear what the words sound like. Um, so what happens after Chaucer is that difference starts making a difference. Um, the difference in spelling versus sound so that um, for people who are reading English half of them can hear that K-N-I-H-T they hear it as night even if they're reading silently Um, and the other half are seeing those letters and they're seeing that those letters are actually very similar to 8 because they see the I-H-T in both of them. And they make those comparisons. So different people will um, see words as closer or farther away from each other um, based on whether they tend to be more visual or more um, sound um, connected. I think in among English majors, people who do poetry tend to hear more. Um, People who do at least pre-20th century poetry tend to hear more, tend to sub-vocalize as they read. And people who really like novels tend to um, process visually um, and can actually read faster for that reason. It slows you down to sub-vocalize. At any rate, in Chaucer, it didn't make a difference. Um, Words that looked like they rhymed did rhyme. Um, Words that looked like they didn't rhyme didn't. Um, Then there was a big shift in English pronunciation. And um, spelling got weird to the extent that in the, early, in the late 19th and early 20th century, George Bernard Shaw, who you will know is the writer of Man and Superman, among um, many, many other things, um, demanded a reform of English. And he said, for example, you could phonetically spell that word, G-H-O-T-I, Shaw said, spelt fish. And the reason it's spelt fish is it's the GH of enough, the O in women, and the TI in nation. So fish. And he thought that was ridiculous, and no one could ever learn English, and English would fail as a world language, and um, the end of empire was come, and terrible things would happen. And he believed in phonetic spelling, and he actually published some essays that are utterly unreadable in um, phonetic spelling. And there was a very, very uh, small, thank goodness, small um, movement to publish books in phonetic spelling. Um, I had the misfortune of having to find a book once by Robert Bridges. Um, in that, that ha- turns out to have been published both in phonetic and in normal English, and the normal English was taken out of the library, and there was this <laughs> giant phonetic volume, and it was just so vexing. <laughs> um, so what that meant was the, the reason Skelton is saying that um, now men would have amended is English whereat they bark, is because people actually lost a sense of Chaucer's pronunciation. And that wasn't recovered for a while. People thought Chaucer pronounced his words in a more modern style than he did. And what they really thought was that he wasn't metrical. Um, That is, that his rhymes were iffy, and that there really wasn't any meter in Chaucer. Um, And what they didn't realize is that every vowel gets pronounced. Um, So if you pronounce every vowel, if you pronounce the E's at the end of words, which you do, when you read Chaucer, um, then he's metrically perfect. Um, But there was a sort of gap in the history of English poetry when this pronunciational shift occurred. Um, And Scotland actually came into it uh, in an interesting way, but we don't have to go into details there. Um, But that gap meant that there is a sense in which Skelton is reinventing or is one of the reinventors of English poetry, even though he really, really loves Chaucer and says, no, Chaucer is perfect. Don't be amending his works. Don't be modernizing them. Um, Rhyme itself is a modern, um, and by modern what I mean is basically the year 1000 and after, um, is a modern innovation in poetry. Um, Ancient poetry in the West was so easy to rhyme that no one thought that that was a good thing. Um, In fact, it was thought to be a bad thing. Um, If you rhymed, you were getting this um, absurd echo um, which um, prevented you from, people from concentrating on what you're saying. That's because ancient languages, Greek and Latin, are inflected languages, and inflected languages means that uh, an inflected language means that you get the same word ending. Um, so, if you, to give an example, the way you would say "of this man" in Greek, um, which is a phrase that will appear fairly frequently, you know that um, that is the um, shield of this man. Um, the The phrase "of this man" is or "this man's" is two 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 anthropou. So there's just lots of that kind of echoing, and rhyming was of no interest in languages that don't have a lot of different vowel, a lot of different syllables. um, Rhyming is not where poetry goes. Um, As European languages, which are much less inflected, French, German is still fairly inflected, but um, French and Spanish and so on, as European languages, where word order rather than word ending mattered. As they developed, rhyme became more and more an interesting thing you could do. Um, What happened was, Dante actually talks about this, um, with the coming of courtly love, um, of movements in courtly love, there were lots of love poems that poets were writing. Um, The poets all knew Latin. No one knew Greek, by the way. Um, People, Skelton didn't know Greek, White didn't know Greek. Greek was not yet a language that had been recovered. Um, But everyone knew Latin. If if you were literate, you pretty much knew Latin. And what happened then was as the love poets came in, they were men who could write and did write and were very, very, very um, facile in writing in Latin. There is some Latin in this poem, as you know, from the church Service the pla he would have pronounced it pla ce beau um, plaque beau I shall please um, at the very beginning of the poem, but if they were writing to the women that they were in love with, the women wouldn 't have known Latin, and so they wrote in vernacular languages, and in writing in vernacular languages in French or Italian or English, they wrote in rhyme um, because that was something that um, nursery rhymes did. That's something you could do in vernacular languages. That's something that was very effective in vernacular languages. And then there was an interesting kind of flip where it then became the case that if you wanted to write in rhyme, which they decided they did, it was a really cool thing, rhyme. Um, If you wanted to write in rhyme, you would have to write in a vernacular language. It didn't make sense to write rhymed poetry in Latin. Um, So people started writing in modern languages. Uh, Dante was the most famous, and he really um, set things going for people after him. But it was in around the 12th and 13th and 14th centuries that poetry (coughs) shifted from being something written, literate poetry, um, published poetry, shifted from being something written in Latin to being something written in French or Italian or English or whatever. And so George's sense that there's a kind of reveling in rhyme that you're getting in Skelton is right. There is. He just loves rhyming, um, and he just loves seeing where rhyming will take you. So if you open Philip Sparrow just randomly, um, well, it's not randomly, it's the first page, uh, page nine. When I remember again how my Philip was slain, never half the pain was between you, Twain, And then she has, she or he has to figure out which twain. So here are four rhyme words. They just suggest themselves to him. And then he has to think of some lovers. So he picks a pair, Pyramus and Thisbe. As then befell to me. I wept and I wailed, the tears down hailed, but nothing it availed to call Philip again, whom Gib, our cat, hath slain. Gib, I say, our cat. So first we get Gib, our cat, hath slain. Um, and we get the rhyme on slain and vain and again and so on. And then he or she um, decides to rhyme on cat. Gib, I say, our cat, borrowed her on that, which I love it best. It cannot be expressed, my sorrowful heaviness, but all without redress. For within that stound, half slumbering in a sound, I fell down to the ground. On I cast mine eyes toward the cloudy skies. The point is that if you take something that isn't serious, like the death of a sparrow. I mean, it's serious enough, but um, not serious as the history of poetry goes. If you take something that isn't serious, then you don't have to be decorous in the poem that you're writing. Um, You can look for whatever images you want, wherever they come from. You can jump from, um, you know, you can say, I look at the skies, or here's Pyramus and Thisbe. You can just go all over the place, and what determines well, where you'll go next is if a rhyme suggests itself to you. So all you have to do, it's, it's, if you've ever done extempore rhyming, um, what you're always doing, there's always a stretch in extempore rhyming. Um, you have to find a reason for the rhyme that occurs to you. Um, and finding a reason for the rhyme is a lot easier if you're talking about something that isn't serious. Um, if you're talking about something that is serious, it becomes much harder. Um, the really, really good slam poets can talk about serious things and find reasons for rhyming. Um, but generally, um, the funnier the thing, the uh, more heterogeneous the things you can say about it. Um, a modern version of this is someone like Cole Porter. If you know, do people know the song, You're at the Top? Anyone not know it? Um, anyone who knows a, kid, a good so singer, yeah. What a, what other Cole Porter would I mean? <laughs> um, or do you know Anything Goes? You know that? Can you can you sing? Can anyone sing in this though.
2: All
0: right. Why don't you look it up? Because all right, good. Cole Porter is very famous for list poems, um, for poems that list things. So you're the top. Um, you're the Tower of Pisa. You're the top. Anyone know what Ron with that? It was you're the Smile on, on the Mona Lisa. Lisa. Yeah, You're the Smile on the Mona Lisa. Um, I'm the nominee of the GOP, or GOP, but if baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Um, you're, um, what is, one is... Castor is
2: in there
0: somewhere, isn't it? Um, I don't remember Cass Jones, but he did different versions of it lots of times. Um, or... Um, you're, what is it? you're sublime, you're a turkey dinner, um, you're the time of the derby winner. Yeah, OK. Um, or uh, what is it? It's the, another rhyme is, uh, you're, uh, you're inferno's Dante, um, you're the nose of the great Durante. That is Jimmy Durante, people. Yes, we have no bananas. Um, so that's one version of a list poem by Cole Porter. Another one is, are you looking up anything, guys? Yes internet long. Ugh, darn, internet. These those two yeah, we gonna race on yet?
2: Um, yeah.
0: Who once used better words no. now only use four letter words, writing prose. Yeah, but it's the it's what comes after that. Um days days night today and black's white today. Um how's it go? Uh, days Night Today, black's white today. Um, that gent today, you gave a cent today. Once owned several chateaus. Um, okay. Well, while, while she finds it, the point is that if <laughs> if you want to do a list poem and you want to say um, you want a lot of rhymes, well, anything goes would be a really good list to give yourself because you can put anything on the list. That's the whole point of the title, is that anything goes. Hi. Um, So the same with You're the Top. Anything that's the top, uh, Castle in Spain and Cellophane, um, those are both the best in their respective fields. Um, So when you're doing something funny, rhyming is um, wild and wonderful and available to you. The more serious the poem, the harder it is to rhyme it. Um, So Skelton's delightfulness comes from... uh, the fact that he loves rhyming so much and he'll go anywhere for a rhyme. Nothing will ever stop him from rhyming, no matter how outrageous he'll rhyme. Um, Is your hand up, Sam? No. No. Okay. Um, Let's look. Now let's turn to Wyatt. Um, What did you guys think of the Wyatt reading? I think maybe what we should do first is look at the two sonnets that aren't in that I, that I distributed to you, uh, the long love that in my thought doth harbor, and um, my galley charged with forgetfulness. He just needs a hug. Sorry? He just needs a hug. Well, he got a hug, and then um, the person who hugged him had her head cut off. Um,
2: yeah, that was <laughs> <harsh>. <laughs> That was
0: yeah, shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But does someone want to read the long love that in my thought to harbor? Yeah.
2: The long love that in my thought to harbor, and in my heart of keeping stressing, is my faith practiced practice with bold pretense, and there in narrowing campus, spreading his banner. She that new learners to love and suffer. And wills that my trust and lust negligence be reigned by reason, shame, and reverence. With his hardiness taketh displeasure. Thou fall unto the heart's forest he fleeth, leaving his enterprise with pain and cry. And there him hideth and not appeareth. What may I do when my master feareth, but in the field with him to live and die? For good
0: is the life ending fatally. Great, thank you. That was beautiful. Um, so just <coughs> interpret it. Just, <coughs> just paraphrase what it means. The long love that in my thought doth harbor. Um, what does the word long mean there? This might be an incredibly easy question. <laughs> Okay, nice, enduring. Yeah, I've I've loved for a long time. Um, Why the word harbor? Yeah, Um,
2: it has nice, meaty, multiple meanings. Um, It can be either safe harbor or to like harbor a criminal. Uh You know, there's an air of subterfuge about it. It's not just. not just something you keep, it's something that you're almost hiding?
0: Okay, I think it probably wouldn't quite have the hiding, the harbor the criminal um, resonance then, but there is a sense of um, a place where you can, um, there's a sense of shelter in the word. Um, Gabriel.
1: Um, I was going to relate it to banner, He's mm-hmm. talking about a banner, and I seem to read that as more of a militaristic aspect. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about a harbor, uh, naval ships, or if you're sailing from England to France, engage in a war, you're sailing from a harbor. Mm-hmm. So, um, or, and then you stay in a harbor, and if he's with the king, he's probably on a ship in the harbor for safety purposes. Okay. So that's kind of my train of thought.
0: Okay, good. Um, or your ship of thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's like a ship in a harbor in his thought. Um, so what would it mean, even if you take, the, take a little bit of the subterfuge idea, what would it mean for the love to harbor in his thought? Yeah. Maybe
1: that now it's there and later it
2: won't
0: be. Okay, now it's there and later it's it won't like be.
2: It's
0: um, So the long love is short-lived. Maybe. Okay, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: the Kept at the forefront, like it's. It's not like he's repressing it; it's in his thoughts, like
0: constantly. Uh huh. Okay, so so, but why? Yeah, George.
1: He's not sharing it with anybody.
0: Yeah. He's keeping it
1: safe in his own heart.
0: Okay, and in particular, who is he not sharing it with then?
1: His girlfriend.
0: Yeah, the the woman that that he is, the what what is often called. Um, just generically, The Cruel Fair. Um, that's a generic name for the woman that this kind of poem is written to. Um, she's beautiful, I'm so in love with her, but I can't tell her because she would be so cruel. Um, you could almo- you could start feeling that maybe and They Flee From Me as well. Um, this is a translation, but also an adaptation of a poem of, Petr- of Petrarch's. Um, and we will next week see Surrey's Um, translation of the same poem. In fact, maybe we'll look at it after we look at at this, so we'll officially be keeping up with the syllabus. Um, So it harbors in my thought, which means probably something like um, it tries to take shelter there and not announce itself. Um, Maybe hide, um, but at least it's in my thought it it's um, safe from exposure or relatively safe from being exposed it's less exposed to danger, so it is militarist um, that is its banner is going to be the is going to be the crucial word um, What do you think of those rhymes harbor and banner Yeah I have a question
2: at this point in the vowel shift transition would those have been solid rhymes or, or would they have
0: been a little iffy like there now i don't think you could ever make them solid in any in any pronunciation because because of the r b versus a n in other words we never rhyme unless we're wyatt um you really don't rhyme on an unstressed syllable on the er and harbor and the er and banner um, those are both probably more or less schwas, as the phonologists say. That is the most neutral kind of vowel sound. Um, you know, that upside down. Do you guys, did you do that in elementary school? Look up pronunciations in dictionaries? You never had to do that. So there's, there's it's, it's a little bit like George Bernard Shaw. You're lucky. But if you do look up the pronunciation of something, now, yeah, now you just go to Wikipedia and there's a little, there's a little um, speaker and you can hear what it sounds like. Um, there is a letter called a schwa, or there is a sign called a schwa, which is this, and if you, if you look up a word in a dictionary book, dictionaries used to be books like this, Um, (laughs) and they were, they were the same words as this book except in alphabetical order. And if you looked up a word, you would see a pronunciation, and that sound, which is called a schwa, is basically the most neutral, um, unstressed sound in the world, kind of like an E but not e or eh, but <laughs> sort of the uh, uh me. not even meh. Um, so harbor and banner, those are schwa sounds. But they don't rhyme. Um, they wouldn't count as rhyming. You know, imagine trying a limerick that way. Um, there, once was, there once was a man at a barber um, who said that he wanted a banner. Um, you would say, not so much. <laughs> um, what are the other rhymes with harbour and banner here? Suffer and displeasure. Suffer and displeasure. yeah. The, um, the rhyme scheme is a Petrarchan scheme. Um, so the way Petrarchan sonnets work is they divide into what's called an octet and a sestet. Do you know any, Tony, Did you re- have you read any? Petrarch in Italian? A little bit. So, but you don't want to recite any? Mm-hmm. I
1: don't think
0: I could. Okay. Um, so the way Petrarch wrote sonnets was that all sonnets, this isn't true either, but we'll say it's true, sonnets are mainly 14 lines long. Um, 99.9% of sonnets that you will find are 14 lines long. Um, 14 lines, but they all rhyme. Again, 99.9% of sonnets rhyme, which means that you have at most seven pairs of rhymes. Um, What that means then, each line pairs up with at least one other line. What that means then is that sonnets are by their nature asymmetrical, because if you have seven pairs of lines, you can't divide the sonnet right in half unless you split a split a rhyme. That is, you you split. Um, you could do a, you could do couplets. You could do a sonnet A A B B C C D D E E, F F G G, um, and then you could split it right in the middle. But first of all. Couplets, there's no reason for a poem to be a sonnet if it's in couplets. It's just the 14-ness of the sonnet gets lost. It's just seven couplets, big deal. And secondly, if the 14-ness weren't to get lost, then you would be splitting the sonnet right down the middle, right at the end of the seventh line. So you'd have three, three, rhymed, three rhymed couplets, then a line, then a split, then another line, and then three more rhymed couplets. So um, it's even Baroque to go there. The main point is that sonnets are, by their nature, asymmetrical. The way Shakespeare solves the problem is to have four quatrains and then a couplet. So you have four quatrains that all look the same in form, and then a couplet, which is like a quatrain compressed, so that it's half the size of the previous quatrains. The way Petrarch solves it, is to, or what he does, is to write his sonnets so that they start with an octet, with an eight-line form, um, usually rhymed A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, not invariably, but, but usually, um, and then to write a sestet, another six lines, which will usually be rhymed in a different form. Um, Here what you'll see is it's um, A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, C, D, D. So C, D, C, C, D, D. So it doesn't look at all like a shorter version of the octet. Um, frequently in, um, in Petrarch there's what's called a turn between the octet and a sestet uh, the technical name for this is a volta which is Italian for turn so the octet will set the situation up and then the sestet um, will tell you what the result of that situation is um, this sonnet is an example of that um, but that's basically the structure of Petrarchan sonnet um, octet followed by sestet, and there's a turn between them. So here we have a b b a a b b a, and the a rhymes are harbor, banner, suffer, and displeasure. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, harbor, banner, suffer, displeasure. Yeah.
2: But faithfully
0: doesn't rhyme with dying cry. Um, it's it rhymes as much as banner does with harbor. Um, it's the. Um, oh, I see. One, yeah, there is a convention in English which um, probably has to do with the history of the English language um, and probably has to do also with um, hearing diphthongs slightly differently and also has to do with if you read a lot of poems where words like that are supposed to rhyme. Our brain treats them as rhymes. Um, This is actually an interesting thing when we think words rhyme that don't. Um, It's rare, but it happens. Um, So, people know Blake's poem, The Tiger. This is the most famous example of this. Um, So, what is the non rhyme rhyme in The Tiger? Symmetry. symmetry. With? Symmetry. Yeah, with what? With I. With I, yeah. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Whoops. <laughs> um, but if, you, if you're if you taught tiger in seventh grade or whatever grade uh, you learn it in I was in seventh grade, um, and uh, you get used to rhymes like symmetry and eye, and you see that they're also all over Shakespeare, um, after a while, your brain handles them the way it handles um, irregular past tenses. We have a kind of irra- we have regular rhymes um, that we think of as rhyming, and you know anyone can can figure out rhymes to a word. Um, you can say hope and dope, and you can um, look for other rhymes. If you've ever tried to write a, po- a rhyming poem, you know what that's like. You say, "Oh my gosh, I am so in love." And let's see, of, above. I guess I could do above, <laughs> cove. well, there's cove, but it's not cove. Dove, yeah, that'll do it. Um, so going through the alphabet that way um, is looking for a rhyme where you'll hear whether it rhymes. Um, and those are regular rhymes in the same way that if you're taught a new verb in English that you um, haven't heard before, like Google, um, a verb that is first attested in a book, I think in William Gibson's Pattern Recognition. I think that's the first um, hardcover book to use Google as a verb. What's the past tense of Google? Google? Googled. Everyone knew that. No one said, oh my gosh, the past tense of Google is a giggle. <laughs> maybe it's gaggle. Maybe it's goggle. Well, I goggle you and... It just doesn't work that way. So mainly we know how to form past tenses, regular past tenses in English. Um, However, there are past tenses that are irregular. And we don't stop to think about the fact that yesterday I swam across the lake and then I Googled you, um, that that we're not forming the past tense of swim in the same way that we form the past tense of Google. Um, so those are called, if you've ever taken foreign languages, you know that those are called irregular. Sometimes they're called aorists, strong aorists, or irregular verbs. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, but it's also, you know, that's not always true. For example, snuck is not actually a word. The past tense of sneak is sneaked, but everyone says snuck. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, 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 it isn't always true. Um, but it's sometimes um, when words rhyme. I mean, this actually shows you the past tense and rhyme go together um that when words rhyme we sometimes think that they they have the same irregular past tense um and um and they sometimes do and they sometimes don't um we say bring and brang we say ring and rang um and we know that it's brought um but we say bring because of the rhyme um so How many people say dove as the past tense of dive? I dove into the water. And how many of you would prefer to say I dived into the water? Um, <laughs> dive is actually replacing dove. Um, it's rarer and rarer to see dove in print. Um, I say dove also, but, um, but dive is, dived is replacing dove. Generally, regular past tense over, over centuries replace irregular ones. Um, partly as people from other countries, as people for whom a language is their second language become speakers of it. They tend to regularize it, and that tends to spread through language. At any rate, it's simply a fact of the way we learn our own native languages um, that we learn the irregular past tenses just as well as we learn the regular past tenses. Um, They're harder to learn. Steven Pinker actually um, has an article about this. Um, If you look at little kids, um, they will get the irregular verbs right at the age of two two or so. And then, once they figure out that there's a pattern to regular past tenses, they start making mistakes that they didn't make when they were littler. Um, And they start saying stuff like, I bringed it home when a year earlier they would say, I brought it home. And then they have to relearn the irregular verbs. Um, So that pattern um, suggests ways in which we learn language, learn to regularize things, um, go against irregularities, and then relearn the irregularities, and they become just as natural as the regularities. Um, So in rhyme. The simplest thing we can say is that I and symmetry are what you could call, what I've just decided to call, an irregular rhyme. They count as rhyming to people who read a lot of poetry. And they sound weird to people who don't read a lot of rhymed poetry. Um, How does that rhyme? Um, But if you do read a lot of rhymed poetry, then um, if someone in the class that you're teaching says, but wait, that doesn't rhyme, you'll have to think about that for a second to realize, oh, wait, they're right. It doesn't rhyme. Um, another possibility or, or an ex- explanation for where this irregularity came from, do you know why went is the past tense of go? It's actually the past tense of wend, like wend your way. And then um, if you did wend your way, you went. Um, so it's it's like pass and past, wend and went. Um, but then when stopped being a common word for going and go um, replaced it. So in fact, they're two different sources for, for the present and the past, past tense of go. Um, so what happens is language is always recombining, like recombinant DNA. It's always recombining and, and doing all sorts of things. Um, and we keep up with it. So another possibility is that if you if you listen carefully you will hear that the vowel, I, ends with an E. It's I. And so symmetry also ends with that E. And what's being rhymed with, between I and symmetry is, to the people who, hear, who heard it as a rhyme, who thought it was a rhyme, they simply heard it as I, symmetry. What's the problem? Um, you can have party. You can have "ie," you can have symmetry. They all rhyme. Um, and it's also, there it is a case of pronunci- pronunciation shifting. That is to say that I used to be pronounced E. Um, people would talk about, um, I, got some, I got some mud in, my, in me E. Um, and um, when that pronunciation changed, the conventional rhyme with things that were simple E sounds was nevertheless part of the language. Um, So there are all sorts of reasons. This isn't a course in this, but I think it's so fascinating that I can't help myself. Um, So let's just say then, by the end of this course, you won't even notice the die and faithfully don't rhyme. Um, To you, it'll seem perfectly obvious that they do. Um, Yeah?
2: So was it then that die was pronounced die Like, they pronounced that extra e, and that's why faithfully and die were supposed
0: to rhyme? Or is that just one of those things that they I'm not positive how Wyatt would have pronounced die. Um, he might have pronounced it d. D. I don't think so. But he would have heard it in lots of poetry before him, especially in Chaucer, <laughs> as rhyming with E. And so it would have been conventional for him. Think, George. Uh, don't
1: the Scots say, lay me down in D?
0: Did he? So,
1: no, no, the, the way in Scotland there. Oh, sorry. Know, I thought
0: you said Walter Scott. Do so they really? lay me lay down, down in D, a D. huh lay me do, lay me do. <laughs> whoa okay yeah alright so there is the Scottish thing um, going on here no I mean what happened was that Chaucer was actually his, his best disciples were Scottish poets um, not the English poets but Scottish poets and they kind of um, had a sense of what he was doing that the English poets lost um, and that's part of what Skelton is referring to so yeah that, make, that makes sense and if you think of Burns um, uh, when Burns is is printed more or less phonetically, you can you can, and lots of other dialect poets, you can hear that. Um, okay, so so much for the form, um, but notice that residence pretense negligence and reverence, those are those are perfectly good rhymes. Um, Appeareth and feareth is a perfectly good rhyme. Die and cry is a perfectly good rhyme. Why harbor banner, suffer displeasure? Do you think that's intentional, or is Wyatt reaching?
1: It must be intentional.
0: Or I wouldn't ask. Right? (laughs) Good. You're learning. (laughs) So <laughs> what, um, yeah, you were going to say intentional too? Uh, no. <laughs> you were going to say unintentional? I'm just thinking. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: It's it kind of like um,
0: dissonance in music where if
2: it's, you're expecting a harmony comedy that produce some sort of dissonance, in this case it'd be rhyme, but it draws the attention. To
0: yeah. It. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Gabriel.
1: Uh, prior to the translation, did it rhyme?
0: In, yeah, it rhymed in Italian. Okay. Um, yeah, Petrarch, it's much easier, you should know, by the way, it's much easier to rhyme in Italian so than in you English. Was he um,
1: preserve the actual words that Petrarch used?
0: Um, he was, no, he was trying to preserve the ideas. Actually, I'm not sure the Sarri is in here, but the Sarri's trans, translation um, is much more accurate, um, which is... Um, no it it isn 't um, it's i 'll zero that for you also um, sorry 's translation is much more accurate, and there 's a particular thing that Wyatt changes so here 's the thing to know about Wyatt um, a lot one of the reasons that toddle smooth cleaned him up and changed what he wrote was toddle um, thought that Wyatt was um, really wonderful but that it really was Surrey, his disciple, who was who was younger than he was, and who who re- wrote an amazing elegy on Wyatt, which begins, "Wyatt resteth here, that quick, could never rest." That is, that when he was alive, um, that is, "quick" as meaning alive, um, he was always restless, and now he's at rest because he's not quick, because he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, So Sari was credited with smoothing out English poetry so that um, it sounds much more metrical and the rhymes are much much sweeter, Um, don't have nearly the dissonance that you get in Wyatt's rhyme. When Wyatt's manuscripts were discovered in the early 20th century, um, it always amazes me that things can go missing for 500 years and then be found. Um, But when Wyatt's manuscripts were discovered in the early 20th century, Um, People could see how he revised his poems, and the really fascinating thing is he revised them for roughness. He made them rougher in his revisions. Um, He would write, a lot of these poems were also written to music, not the sonnets, but um, some of the other poems, like um, My Lute Awake. Um, But he wrote very smoothly and with very great harmony um, in his first drafts. And then he worked against that, he worked to make them less smooth and less harmonious. Um, and again, that's <coughs> just a purposefulness in what he's doing, that to get um, the painfulness of the situation that he's trying to describe. He's actually managing um, harmonies and dissonances, consonances and dissonances. Yeah? Um, I remember there
2: was one of the poems that we read by Wyatt, and it was called in a turnum or yeah. I, I probably am, are not pronouncing that right, but um, that was very much um, repetitious. Yeah. I, I thought in a very beautiful way, but is that so, I guess, did he not really revise that, or was that one of the ones that?
0: Well, that we don't know. I mean, it's it's there are not that many poems that we that we see as revisions for. So by we, at this point, I mean me. There yeah. may be people who do know. Um, but of most of the poems, we um, people don't know. Um, but you can guess from from the f- from the few where we do see his revisions um you can guess that he does tend to revise for roughness um tend to revise to give it um, a, you know the a, a quality of of friction and <coughs> resistance and um uh the power that comes with that um, so here, I think the effect first of all is that you get in the middle lines, in the B rhymes, and in my heart doth keep his residence into my face presseth with bold pretense, that's, there's a kind of security in that. There's a kind of self-confidence in the rhyming. The rhymes are much more prominent. They're closer together because it's rhymed A, B, B, A, and the B rhymes, which are closer together, are also more prominent even if they were farther apart. Probably a standard way of doing A, B, B, A rhymes would be, um, I've never checked this out, but now I think I will, would be that if you have to give yourself um, stretches in the rhyming, um, you might want to do it in the B rhymes because they're close together anyhow. Um, And the A rhymes you might want to rhyme more prominently so that people can keep track of a rhyme that doesn't get picked up till three lines later. Um, on the other hand, you can certainly get away with, less, with, um, with sketchier rhymes if the, words are, if the rhymed word isn't going to be picked up for three lines. Um, harbor, residence, pretence, banner. You've kind of forgotten the harbor part, and it's trailed off anyhow. Harbor, banner. But in this case, I think the effect is um, a really good one, that there's confidence in the middle lines, in the B rhymes, and um, some lack of confidence in the A rhymes. So the long love that in my thought doth harbor for protection, and in mine heart doth keep his residence into my face presseth with bold pretense, and there encampeth, spreading his banner. So how's his body being described here metaphorically? Yeah.
2: A battleground?
0: A battleground. um, And a battleground with certain geographical features. Um, Those features are, let's say, a harbor. Um, His face is a place where um, the long love can camp and spread his banner there. His heart is like a castle. And in my heart doth keep his residence um, so that that love is a lord. Um, that's what the end of the poem is going to say. What, what may I do when my master feareth? Um, so in him is a lord who controls him, but from the inside. So the long love that in my thought doth harbor and in mine heart doth keep his residence into my face presseth with bold pretense and there encampeth spreading his banner. What does that mean? That's a conceit. Does everyone know what the word conceit is? I ta- i mentioned metaphysical conceits, but I didn't actually define the word conceit. Um, so you do know what it is? Define? Oh, um, no. no. Okay. You know, but you don't. You can't define. Um, so a conceit is like an extended metaphor. Um, it's conceit, not as in um, he's so conceited, um, he thinks that he doesn't have to release his taxes, um, but it's conceit as in conception. Um, It's an idea that you get everything to fit together well. It's a kind of um, longer than a metaphor, because a metaphor can just be transitory and passing. A conceit is the exploration of a kind of metaphorical idea. Um, So to ask what's the conceit is to ask, what's the metaphor that goes all the way through this poem? about love and and how does that metaphor work again the metaphysical conceit of the of the twin compasses is um your firmness makes my circle just thy firmness makes my circle just um because a compass will do that and also makes me end where i begun because that's what a compass does. You draw a circle and you end where you begun. And not only is the compass good because it's so good for describing how um, two, the two legs of the compass can provide a perfect circle, like two lovers um, who make a perfect circle together, but also how you get happier, you go grow erect, as I come closer to you, as I come home, because that also happens with a compass. Um, it's also a good conceit for the fact that we're traveling because you're staying still where you are, whereas I'm the one who's going around having to travel in various places. So there are three ideas in a compass that work for the poem. Um, the idea here is that love is, is a lord who is um, engaged in some kind of battle. And um, the landscape, the field of this battle, or the geography, is all the body of the poet. Um, so how does that work there, though? You can't just say, well, um, I don't know. I feel that, I feel that um, my college career is like being inside the body of an elephant. Um, my first year was, you know, it's obvious, right? My first year was like the left front leg, and my second year was like the right front leg, and my third year was like the left rear leg, and my f- last year was like the right rear leg. Isn't that great? People would say, why? <laughs> you know, what does, what does the elephant do for you there? Um, so what does the idea of his body as the battlefield do? Barbara? Because he's
2: talking how, about how it's the love is, like, lingering there, so it's taking camp there, so it's uh, showing how it never leaves him and he's always dwelling on it.
0: Okay, good. So it's always in my thought. It it's it takes harbor in my thought. It hides in my thought. So the first line, just as a metaphor, makes sense. Um, there's this love, and, and it needs... It's long, not only... Um, of long duration, but a big thing that needs a place to hide. Um, It needs a place to hide because I don't want to tell her that I love her, lest she be cruel. Um, So I keep it to myself. But I'm thinking about it all the time. So that's why it harbors in my thoughts. So as a single idea, that first line makes sense. Yeah, Barbara.
2: Oh, I was just going to add, maybe also because the love is... It's a battle, kind of. Um, Maybe he's trying to keep it inside, or whether to tell her or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, good. And it's he's also always thinking about her. If it's in, if the love is in his thought, he's always thinking about her. Um, Yeah.
2: It's also, you know, if the conquering lord is spreading his banner, that means. Either way, you've lost. Either you were completely overcome or you decided to surrender. Neither of these are actually, like, positive emotions. Mm -hmm. And so when you bring that in, she that me learneth to love and suffer, um, the dual meaning of suffer both is, like, to suffer someone's company. It's just, you know, they're near you and you have to let them be. And also suffer is in the actual act of suffering. Uh Um, Whether it's a loss or a surrender, it's still, you know, you feel like there's this sort of alien agent that you're, you know, you have to deal with, but not necessarily welcome.
0: Okay, good. Um, all right. Second line, and in my heart doth keep his residence. Um, again, that makes sense with the first line. So I think about her all the time, um, but it's not just intellectual love. Um, it, He's always coming into my thought, love is, is always coming into my thought, and he lives in my heart. It's true love. Um, so... I'm in love and I'm thinking about the fact that I'm in love all the time. Um, So love is in the head, love is in the heart. Um, That's a standard pairing, head and heart. Um, So, so far it's okay. The long love that in my thought, as a a conceit, as a metaphor, there's nothing unusual or difficult here. this is easy to process metaphor. The long love that in my thought doth harbor and in my heart doth keep his residence. Into my face presseth with bold pretense and there encampeth spreading his banner. Now, what does that mean? If we say love harboring in my thought means I think about her all the time. Love keeping his residence in my heart means that I really love her. It's from the heart. Um, what does love pressing with bold pretense and camping and spreading his banner in my face mean? Yeah. I mean, if the if person is, like, is having the idea of love on their mind all the time and continually thinking about it, that their emotions can now be read through their face, someone looking at their face can tell how they feel, and that this love has affected them so much that their facial expression itself is different. Yeah. Um, what would the banner of love be in someone's face? Yeah. Blushing. Blushing. Yeah. This, so here he's describing blushing. And what he's basically saying is, I saw her, or I see her, and I blushed. And because I blushed, she knew what I was thinking. I didn't just say, oh, hey. Um, But I got tongue-tied and stammered, and in particular, I blushed. Um, And that is the banner of love spread in his face. So they're in campus spreading his banner. Um, So love. It's always in my thoughts and always in my heart. And then, um, seeing her, I blushed, which was the boldness of love. So notice this conceit is almost a self-antonym. This is what you were saying, Leah, that what love is um, doing to him is the opposite of what he wants to do. He doesn't want to say, oh, I love you, but he's noticing that he's blushing as though love itself within him is declaring itself to her, even though he doesn't want to. Um, So this is a good description of a kind of self-division in his desires. He wants her to know he doesn't want her to know. Love wants her to know that's why we blush, why we stammer, and so on. Um, Because the emotion itself wants the other person to know somehow. Um, Even if we want to keep it to ourselves, we can't. As Freud says, betrayal oozes out of every pore. We're always betraying ourselves. And that's what he's describing here. God, she knows. I'm kicking myself. But he's not quite saying I'm kicking myself. He's saying I'm kicking love within me for doing this to me. Because notice that in the fifth line then is, it's she that me learneth to love and suffer. So he's the one loving and suffer suffering. She that me learneth to love and suffer and will that my trust and lusts negligence be reigned by reason, shame and reverence with his hardiness taketh displeasure. So she wants my trust and lusts negligence that is blushing itself um the the lack of self-command that lust has she wants it to be reigned by reason, shame, and reverence, and it's not he's blushing, he's not simply able to um treat her with respect, um love her fine, but treat her with respect and not make it an issue um she taketh displeasure with his hardiness. She's angry that he blushes. So that's what we're getting here in in a somewhat elaborate way, but the situation is I'm always thinking about her, I run into her, I blush, and she gets angry. And so that's the octet. That's the situation. So what does love do then? The long love that harbors in his thought when she gets so angry. She blows up at him. She says, ah! Or she turns on her heel and walks away. So what does he do? What does love do? Retreats. Retreats. where?
1: Into the heart.
0: Yeah, into the heart's forest. Such a great phrase. Especially since we've already thought of the heart as a castle. But now it's almost as though everything has been destroyed, made wild, made... Um, ungovernable, wherewithal unto the heart's forest he fleeth, leaving his enterprise with pain and cry, and there him hideth and not appeareth. So he goes scurrying back, tail between his legs, to the heart's forest. So notice that what Wyatt does here is to change the the heart from the residence of love to a forest to a wilderness um, is just a great way of pursuing this geographical set of images but showing how everything has changed. It's like, do you guys know that book, The World Without Us? Um, it came out like, you know it?
2: I, I know of it. I've never read it but I, it, that's the one where it describes what would happen if like for some reason like humans just didn't exist anymore and like what would happen to the buildings and yeah. like, yeah. Discovery
0: Channel do, like, a thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if human beings just just um, stopped existing um, tonight, um, here's what would happen tomorrow, and here's what would happen in two days, and here's what would happen in a week. Um, what would happen in two days is all of New York City's subways would be flooded, um, and pretty soon the streets would be flooded, too. Um, New York, to be New York, has to be pumping water out of the subways um, basically 24-7. Um, so it's not like, oh, things would be in a Sleeping Beauty suspended animation for a while until the weeds started growing. Um, It's how quickly everything would change. That's kind of what's happened here. Um, The residence of love has now turned into a forest, wherewithal unto the heart's forest he fleeth, (coughs) fleeth, leaving his enterprise with pain and cry, and there him hideth and not appeareth. And then why it says, and what may I do when my master feareth, but in the field with him to live and die, for good is the life ending faithfully. Um, So what choice does he have? What does he have to do, according to this rhetorical question? What may he do? What may I do when my master feareth, but die with
1: him?
0: Yeah. Um, just literally. What does he have to do? Don't it Yeah, he has to, he, he's he's gonna stick with love. Um, live and die with love. Um, if love dies, he dies. If love lives, he lives. Um, So what does he want? But in what may I do in my master fear but in (coughs) the field with him to live and die? Um, I have to be loyal to him. For good is the life ending faithfully. Um, Faithful to whom? Uh, To love. Yeah, so what Wyatt is actually doing here um, is the way Petrarch ends the sonnet is to say, and the way Sari ends it in his translation, um, Sari's last line is, good is the life that taketh end by love. That is, it doesn't matter, even if she gets angry and tells me to go away and I get all frightened and um, love goes shrinking into the heart's forest, I'm going to love forever because it's better to love even someone who spurns you. um, To stay loyal to that person and to love her is still the right thing to do. But Wyatt doesn't translate it that way. He has, um, it's almost as though the split between himself and love, between the speaker and love, um, introduces a second relationship here. In Petrarch, and Surrey, it's, I love her, and here's my metaphor for that. In Wyatt, it's, I'm tormented by love, but I'm going to stay faithful to love. Not faithful to her. It's not, oh, I'm so in love with her and this is how I'm describing it. It's that love is all I have. And so I'm going to stay faithful to love. Not because I'm so desperately in love with her so much as um, it's the right thing to be loyal to love. Um, Love is important even in pain. Love is important even if it is painful. Um, And that's a very Wyatt. Way of seeing things. It's this, it's not unlike the split in "They Flee for Me," where he's staying loyal to a memory of wonder, even though it's gone. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: he says. He says. Um, but in the field, in the in the same thought vein of the residence and the forest, is the field this place where he's able to tell everyone out in the open that he loves her.
0: Um. Well, possibly, um, because in a way that's what he's doing in the sonnet. But I think within the body, um, the field there is going with heart's forest. That is, you don't get to go home. Um, you don't get to go to some place of security where, where love keeps his residence. Um, but um, you retreat, and where do you retreat? You retreat into the heart's forest, so you're still in danger. You're still exposed and outside, and therefore in the field. It's still military. And it's like being in the field um, when you've retreated, but you may be pursued and killed anyhow. Yeah?
2: So he wasn't like suicidal or anything? Because at first when I read this, I was like, is he going to like kill himself?
0: Um, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Um, he w- I mean, he was depressed, but he wasn't suicidal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's also, in a way, it's a, it's a rejection of her it's not even like, you know, you know, she's, she's angry with him for even having these feelings in the first place, and so, you know, he, um, when his love hides, so hides he. But in doing so, he's like, you know, it's a sort of I'd rather be a lover, not a fighter thing. You know, he'd rather be the kind of person who can continue to fall in love, even if that means not loving her anymore, so that way he's protecting his heart for the next person, rather than wrecking himself her.
0: It... <coughs> It could be that. I
2: mean, in the Wyatt interpretation, it it's definitely lends itself to that in a way that its previous forms
0: did. Yeah. But I think it's, it's let's, we, ha, we have a minute. So um, look at the poem, Who So to Hunt, which is also on the sheet I gave you. And is, that's also a sonnet, more or less translated from Petrarch. Um, so again, this is, um, what hunting would be is being in court and being on the make in court. Um, So here we have, Whoso list to hunt, I know where's in hind. Um, So if you want to hunt, I know where you can find what you're hunting for. But as for me, alas, I may know more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind. So I'm so weary. It's been so vain. I'm so exhausted by love that I am the farthest behind in the pack of people who are hunting. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer. So he can't keep up, but he can't stop. That's the experience of, um, well, that's the typical Wyatt experience. Um, It's wearying, it's exhausting, it's painful. It will come to nothing, and it's all I have. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth the fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, sithens, in a net, I seek to hold the wind. That's what it is trying to um, uh, pursue this woman, who is Anne Boleyn. Here he's clearly talking about Anne Boleyn. Um, who Lister Hunt this is the turn, we're now at the Sestat, who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. So if you want to hunt, you can spend your time in vain just as I did. And graven with diamonds and letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, Noli mi tangere. So if you have a footnote, what the footnote will tell you is, that um, Augustus Caesar made sure that his deer weren't being poached by having giving them collars that said, do not touch me. Um, so you didn't want to hunt those deer. Um, so you can follow her. She's amazing. But if you get to her, you will see that she has that collar. There is written, her fair neck round about, Noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Notice how that's like, they flee from me. That is that... It's not that wild things become tame. It's that things that you may think are tame. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek that now are wild. Things that you think were tame, it turns out they they were and are wild. And that love, which in some um, non-passionate view if you're not in love, some non-passionate view of love is, yeah, that's great, you know, it'll be all domestic and we'll be cozy and happy and that's wonderful. Um, seems to aim at tameness, but for Wyatt, love aims at wildness and it becomes more and more wild. And so it's painful. It's a desire which is always painful and a desire for pain. Um, and that's where wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Um, It's a pretty amazing uh, description that he gives of that. Um, All right, uh, sorry for Monday, and have a good weekend.